have a Bible with you, open up to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, good news for you this morning. We're only getting through the first two points of the sermon. Every time I say that, I see big smiles out there like, yes, he's not going to go over, he's going to go under. Well, I may not go under, but we're still going to get through just the first two points. Today's sermon's title is, If Anyone Thirsts. So we're in John chapter 7, where we've been doing a verse-by-verse exposition of the gospel of John. This morning, John 7, verses 37 through 39, and we'll only cover the first two verses. If anyone thirsts, here's what we read. The Apostle John writes this, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Father, we bow our heads and our hearts before you this morning, and we pray that you would enlighten us to understand what this text means as we look at the words of Christ, that we would pay careful attention to this great invitation to anyone who thirsts. Touch our hearts today, God. Change lives today as we grow in our faith, in our dependence, in our joy in you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, thirst is the desire to drink. Thirst is a craving for fluids resulting in the God-given instinct to drink. Thirst is an essential mechanism involved in fluid balance. Thirst arises from a lack of fluids or an increase of dehydrating osmolites, such as salt. If the water volume of the body falls below a certain threshold, or if the dehydrating substance becomes too high, the brain signals thirst. Continual dehydration can be extremely hazardous to your health. Dehydration is the deficiency of your total body water. It occurs when water loss exceeds water intake, usually due to exercise, disease, or high temperatures. If you ignore the body's signal to rehydrate, then you could permanently damage your cells, or in extreme cases, you could even die. Most people can tolerate a 3 to 4% decrease in total body water without much difficulty or adverse health effects. A 5 to 8% decrease can cause fatigue and dizziness. Loss of over 10% of the total body water can cause physical and mental deterioration accompanied by severe thirst. Death occurs at a loss of between 15 and 25% of total body water. And while we believe that the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross as a result of suffocation, he wasn't able to keep pulling himself up and to breathe with his lungs, we also know that he did suffer from severe dehydration. One of the last sayings of Christ on the cross was, I thirst. God has placed certain receptors in the human body that detect a decreased volume or an increased osmolite concentration. So if you have not enough water, too much of the wrong thing, there's a signal that goes through our nervous, our central nervous systems processed in the brain, and it sounds an alarm that it's time for you to replenish your body with life-sustaining water. It would be the thought of 
running a marathon or being in the middle of a desert or going a long day. Just yesterday, we were out with the kids for a while, and one of my kids was like, water, I need water. That's what happens, right? It's the way that God created us. What I want us to look at is today from this passage in John 7, we're going to learn about spiritual thirst. Spiritual thirst is an insatiable desire to drink of the living water that God provides. Spiritual thirst is craving for the things of God. Spiritual thirst is the God-given instinct placed in every person telling you that there's something more to this life than what this world has to offer. And when we either have a lack of biblical truth pouring into our souls or too much of the entertainment of this world, we began to suffer from spiritual dehydration. We began to suffer in a way that if left unattended, it could lead to our spiritual death. And so God has placed certain receptors in the human soul that began to detect this unhealthy state, and it triggers something inside of us that reminds us that we need God. Are you thirsty this morning? Are you suffering from spiritual dehydration? Maybe you're suffering from spiritual dehydration, and you don't even know it. And so let me share with you some of the symptoms of what spiritual dehydration can look like. You can just listen to these, but number one, Spiritual dehydration looks like this. You haven't read your Bible in a week, and you don't even care. Number two, the last spiritual input you had was when you were here last Sunday. Number three, when you do spiritual disciplines such as Bible reading, prayer, giving, worship, and service, you are the same after you do them as you were before which means maybe you're not doing it with the right heart and the right motive. You're just going through your checklist. Number four, when given the choice between spending your time serving yourself or serving others, you regularly choose to take care of yourself first. Number five, you seem to be more interested in pop culture, social media, sports scores, fashion, home decorating. Your grades are making money than you are in knowing Christ and loving Him with all your heart. If you're here this morning and you're suffering from any of these symptoms of spiritual dehydration, then I've got great news for you this morning. We have a Savior who invites you to come and to drink of the living water. We have a Savior who says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Our Savior says, Whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. And the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus says in this passage, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So let me ask you again this morning, are you thirsty this morning? Are you tired of trying to satisfy that thirst with the things of this world? Come to Christ this morning and drink from the fountain of life and have your thirst quenched forever. As we look at the text this morning, I want to give you three simple headings that will help us better understand and also apply the truths of this passage. We'll only get to the first two, but number one is this. Let's look at the connection between Hebrew culture and Christ. Verse 37 
here in the Feast of Booths, we read this. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now, if you are taking notes this morning, I have a couple of blanks you could fill in if you'd like. The first one is this. Let's look at the significance of the Feast of Booths. The significance of the Feast of Booths, particularly if you're just kind of joining us uh, here this morning. We've been looking at some of the historical Jewish culture things that kind of surround this feast. Let me remind you that this Feast of Booths was a time when Jewish pilgrims would make their journey and their pilgrimage to Jerusalem once a year. And it would be a, a week-long festival. And it's called the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles is because they would cut branches off trees, make little outdoor dwelling places along the side of the road or even in the city. And it was to remind them of how Israel, the Israelites, when they left Egypt, traversed through the wilderness. And it was to remind them that this is just a temporary home, that heaven is our home. And so during this feast, it was to begin on the 15th day of the seventh month on the Jewish calendar. And the people would set up these booths and these temporary structures. And the feast itself had two rituals. It had a water ritual, and it had a lighting ritual where they would light the candelabra there in the temple. And here is how the well-known commentator, William Hendrickson, explains uh, some of the things that happened at the feast. He says this, on each of the seven feast days, a priest would fill a golden pitcher with water from the pool of Siloam. Accompanied by a solemn procession, he would return to the temple and amid the sounding of trumpets and the shouting of rejoicing multitudes, he would pour it through a funnel which led its way down to the base of the altar of the burnt offering. The people were in a jubilant mood. Not only did this ceremony remind them of the blessings granted to the forefathers in the wilderness, the water that came from the rock, but it also pointed forward to the spiritual bounties of the Messianic age. Their minds and their hearts and their voices were occupied with such passages as Isaiah 12:3. Therefore, with joy shall you draw water from the wells of salvation. In their right hand, they had a branch of myrtle, a willow twig, and a branch of a palm tree. And in their left, a citron or similar fruit, the desert life of the ancestors passed in review. The festival resembled a historical pageant. Now it may have been immediately after the completion of the symbolic rite of water pouring and the chanting of familiar lines from some of the, the Psalms of Hallel, like Psalm 118, in that very moment, we believe, is when Jesus stood up and he said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So the significance of this is that so much of what is done in Hebrew culture is to help us to remember how God has always been faithful in the past, but it also points to how He will continue to be faithful in the future. Almost everything we do, whether it's Passover, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Pentecost, it points to something in the past, but it also points to something we're continuing to look for in the Messiah and in the, even the second coming of the Messiah when he comes back. And let me tell you, God is always faithful. God is never more faithful than when he sent his son to redeem his people from their sins. God is never more faithful than when he fulfilled all rituals, all prophecies, and all longings in the person of Jesus Christ. While in the tradition of pouring out water was not prescribed in the Old Testament, so we don't 
see this water ritual told specifically they were to do that, it was practiced for about 550 years. And this ritual, again, commemorated God's miraculous provision of water during Israel's desert wanderings. And it's also symbolic of a prayer for rain. This was a ceremony that is really serves as the backdrop in which we see Jesus speaking these unforgettable words. And if Jesus cried out on the last day, on the great day, on the seventh day of the feast, and there's another interesting bit of information I want to tell you that would have made this especially memorable. We're told by several commentaries that on the seventh day, the priests marched around the altar seven times before they poured out this water. So they did it once every day, but on the seventh day, seven times. This was a, a slam-bang finish for sure for this Feast of Booze. This would have been a reminder maybe even of how Joshua defeated Jericho. This would have been something huge where everything of that week comes into climax, and it's at that moment that Jesus gets up and he begins to speak in order to shift the thinking of the Jew from the focus of the wilderness and their physical needs to a spiritual need and to the thirst of the soul. You see, our need this morning is not physical, it's spiritual. And our need isn't solved by creation, but by our Creator. And our need isn't to watch the procession go by, but rather to get into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so another thing I want to point out to you is the clarity, your next blank, the clarity of Christ's invitation. Look what he says here now that we understand a little bit more about what's going on in the midst of this feast. It's actually the last day, the great day. Here we see Jesus stood up and cried out. So this is different because the rabbis usually stay seating, stayed seating. So when they're teaching, they would stay seating. The fact that Jesus stood up is like, I'm about to make an important announcement. I'm about to say something you'll never forget. And he cries out. This word means that he made a powerful cry. It was a loud call. It was a bold proclamation. Not whispering here. He's shouting this out. If anyone thirsts, again, we see here this idea of Jesus using these three verbs. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And so let me just point out each one of these three verbs in succession if I can. Number one, you must be thirsty. You must be thirsty. Jesus says here, if anyone, this is an invitation for all. This invitation is not limited by race or by color or by ethnicity. This invitation is not limited by social status, level of your education, or your political affiliation. It matters not how old you are. It matters not about the details of your past, your family's tradition. This is the clarion call of the gospel. This is an application and implementation of the Great Commission. This is Jesus himself inviting us and confronting us with the grace and the mercy that only He can provide to come to Him. This is a wide-open invitation. It's similar to what Jesus does throughout the gospel. In fact, if we just looked at the gospel of John, we'll say Him regularly saying, anyone, whoever would come. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes. It's what Jesus said in John 4, 14, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty. It's John 6, 35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And so we've got to remember this is a call for anybody. So easy for us as spiritual know-it-alls to look around people in our community and be like, well, I bet they don't even have a study Bible. 
I bet they've never even been to a Bible class. What do they know? No, no, this is an invitation for anyone to come. This invitation is not limited to the spiritual elite. It's not limited to those who are born in a Christian family. This is Jesus Christ opening up this invitation for all. But notice he does say here, it's anyone that thirsts. Thirsts speaks of his spiritual need. And unless a person knows he's a sinner, he will never truly be thirsty. Unless he realizes he's lost, he will never desire to be found. Unless you are conscious of a great spiritual lack in your life, you will never want to come to Jesus and have your whole life transformed. Jesus is inviting thirsty souls. He's inviting the sick, not the well. He's inviting the broken, not those who have it all together. So if you're here this morning and you've got it all together and you're not even thirsty, this is not for you. This is for the broken person. This is for the sinner in great need of grace. This is for the person who has no hope outside of the gospel. This is for the person whose spirit's panting for the streams of God. This is for the person who is desperate for more and who will never be satisfied by the world. This should remind us of Isaiah 55 that says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money on that which is not bread? And you labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in the rich food. This is an invitation for us to come. And so let me ask you again, are you thirsty this morning? If so, Christ invites you to come. He is inviting you this morning to something infinitely nobler and grander than anything you've ever experienced. Jesus speaks of that intense longing for himself, which only the Spirit of God can create in your soul. And so happy would be the man or the woman who could say, along with the psalmist, as the deer pants for the water, so pants my soul for you, Oh God, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Now there's a second verb that's mentioned here. Not only must you be thirsty, you must come. The second verb that Jesus uses, it's actually in the imperative. So you could say in a sense it's an invitation, but it's also a command. He says, come to me. And he says that as a command. We know the word come is the simplest of words in the English language. It means movement from one point to another. It signifies an approach to a person or to an object. And Jesus uses this word come over and over again in the Gospels. In fact, let me give you one reference for all four Gospels. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. In the Gospel of Mark chapter 10, verse 14, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Luke chapter 9, verse 23, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross daily and follow me. And in John chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus says, All the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Are you coming? To come to Christ means that you get up, that you leave your place of comfort, that you leave your place of hiding, that you leave your place of sin. To come to Christ means that you do in your heart 
and in your will what you would do with your feet if Jesus were standing before you in a physical form today and if he were to bid you come. If he were standing up here, the Lord Jesus saying, come to me, you would have to get up and to walk forward. And this is in a sense what Jesus is saying. He's inviting anyone who's thirsty to come. He doesn't say, notice here he says, come to me. Come to me, Jesus says. He doesn't say, come to the church. He doesn't say, come to the pastor. He doesn't say, come to the waters of baptism. He doesn't say, come to the law. He doesn't say, come to some preferred issue you have about church. He doesn't say, come to a list of rules. He doesn't say, come to the hymnal. He doesn't say, come to small group, come to Sunday school, or even come to the Lord's table. No. In this verse, he says, come to me. Only Jesus offers forgiveness. Only Jesus offers life. Only Jesus offers lasting joy. The third key word here in Jesus' invitation, thirsty, coming, and now drinking, you must drink. You must drink, and to drink means to appropriate Christ to yourself. It means to trust Him as Lord and Savior. It means to take Him into your life as you would take a glass of water into your body. On this verse, A.W. Pink cautions us, it is here so many seem to fail. There are numbers of those who give evidence of an awakened conscience of heart exercise or a conscious need for Christ. And there are numbers who appear to be seeking Him and yet stop short at that. But Christ not only said, come unto me, but He added, and drink. A river flowing through a country where people are dying of thirst would avail them nothing unless they drink of it. The blood of the slain lamb availed the Israelite household nothing unless the head of the household had applied it to the door. In other words, you must drink of this water. You've heard the expression, you can lead a horse to the water, but you can't make them drink, right? So Jesus is saying here, it's not good enough just to, just to be thirsty. It's good to acknowledge that. And hopefully the thirst drives you to him. It's not good enough just to come to him. <coughs> you must also ingest him. You must take him in. You must take him into your heart and into your soul. You must come to this well. You must drink. You must drink this living water. Drink of Christ. Drink of the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus says in John 6. 53, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. And so it may sound a little simple that all you've got to do is drink, but this is the remedy for your thirst. This is the remedy for your soul. This is the remedy for your sin. You must be thirsty. You must come to Christ, and you must drink of the fountain of eternal life. And when you come in this way, to drink of Christ, I pray what would be true in you is what Isaiah 58:11 says, and the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong, and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. You get that? When you come, even though life is still scorched, there's water at the cross for you. Even though life is difficult and full of trouble, when you come to this river of life, to this person of Christ, and you drink of Him, you will be replenished. You will be satisfied. Your, your thirst will be satiated in God. You'll want more of Him, but you'll have enough of Him as He comes, as you come to Him and partake of this invitation to come and to drink.
Now, I want to give you a second heading, if I can, this morning, and it's found in verse 38. And the second heading of, of this point here would be this, the connection. We've seen the connection between Hebrew culture and Christ, but now let's talk specifically about the connection between the Old Testament Scripture and Christ, because I'm a little bit intrigued about what Jesus says next. He says, whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, the reason I'm intrigued by this is Jesus references the Old Testament, but he doesn't give a chapter or verse. He doesn't tell us what verse he's talking about, but he has something to say about believing. So first of all, let me just remind you that that word believe is not passive, but active. It's an act of the will. It's a response of the heart. It involves faith and conviction. A true believer will experience transformation and will become a disciple of Christ. To believe in Jesus means to abandon this world and to adore the risen Christ. So I'm just saying the idea of believing is so much more than just be like, well, I believe in Jesus. No, no. This means abandoning it all, trusting in him fully, and coming into this river that he provides of eternal life. And then in this verse, Jesus gives that general reference. Again, look at the middle of verse 38, where he says that basically, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Well, which scripture? We don't know. But I'm going to give you three that I think he might have been thinking about. And when you see at least two of these three, I think you might agree with me, all right? So here's the first one I think he's thinking about is Exodus chapter 7. We're going to look at uh, the rock at Horeb and the person of Christ. So turn with me. you got to turn here to see Exodus 17. Exodus 17, and this is the story about how Moses, after he had delivered the, the Israelites out of Egypt by God's power, and they escaped Pharaoh, and they parted the, the Red Sea. God parted the Red Sea that the Israelites crossed on dry ground. The, the sea closed up and, and swallowed up Pharaoh and all of his army. They all died. And then we have the song of Miriam and Moses, and they're dancing and excited. And then they start going through the desert and all of a sudden everything just stops. And here's why it all stopped. Exodus 17, 1, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So here's the problem. They've parted the, the, gone past the Red Sea. They're out in the middle of the desert. They have no water. Let's see what happens. Verse 2, therefore the people quarreled with Moses how quickly that happened. I mean, they just saw the, these plagues. They just saw the whole army of Israel, swall, I mean, of uh, Egypt swallowed up. Uh, they need a little water, and I get it. Like, I don't like being thirsty. But now it's like all of a sudden, these people are quarreling, saying, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? In other words, he's saying, look, trust the Lord. Don't, don't put him up to the test. But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. 
Now, do you start to see some similarities here? The people are thirsty, and so God gives them water. This is the basis of the water ritual in John 7 at the Feast of Booths. This is what they're doing. This is what they're celebrating. They're celebrating the fact that God provided water while they were in the desert. They're celebrating the fact when the priest poured out the water on the burnt offering at the Feast of Booths is commemorating this event from Exodus chapter 17. Now, here's the connection. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, just in case you're saying, well, Adam, that's great and all, but I'm not sure I see a clear connection. Well, here it is for you. The Lord knew you would ask that. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul records it for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, as Paul's writing this letter to correct both doctrine and practice of the Corinthians, he says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. In other words, he's going to make an important statement. Don't be unaware. In other words, listen up. I got something to say. I want you to know this, brothers. Our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Now, if you look at the cross-references, it'll point you straight back to Exodus 17, and you'll see that we believe this is exactly what Paul was thinking when he's talking about what happened. The Jews even had a, a legend that the actual rock that Moses struck at Horeb that day followed them through their wanderings in the wilderness, providing water as needed. So Paul is saying that they do have a rock providing all that they need, and that rock is Christ. Therefore, this Old Testament passage in Exodus clearly points to Christ and is likely one of the references that Jesus is thinking about at this occasion at the Feast of Booths. He's just reminding us, He's the rock. He provides the water. He's our spiritual drink. We, we get Him. He's our fill. And so we need to not be like the unbelieving Israelites who are complaining, stop complaining, stop thirsting for comfort and for ease, and for a trouble-free life. That's what we want. We want to get saved. It's coming out of Egypt. And we don't want to go through the wilderness. We just want to have a cush life, no problems, no heartache, no difficulties. Who wants that? I, I do. I mean, I, I would be fine with that, I think. But the point is, that's not life. It's filled with heartache. It's filled with pain. It's filled with difficulty. Sometimes what seems unsurmountable that you would never be able to face it. So what do you do? You come to the rock. You come to Christ. You don't expect him to remove all of your troubles instantly, though he could. You expect heartache and trial and tribulation, but you expect something greater than that. You expect a good God who knows where you're thirsty. He knows where the deep water is, and he's leading you this morning through the word of God and in this passage to say, come, drink of Christ. He's the deliverer. He's the sustainer. He's the satisfier. Don't look outside of Christ. Don't look at another river. Don't look outside of anything but the scripture that points us to Christ and drink deeply this morning. My friends, some of you are parched. You're parched. You haven't been drinking of the word of God. No wonder you're about to pass out. You need this water. So come and drink of this water 
and see His amazing care for you, His love for you, His patience for you. Second passage, I think Jesus was thinking about, just, just curious, how many of you think Jesus was thinking about that passage? All right, just me, all right. I, th- I think He was thinking about it. I think He might have been thinking about Ezekiel 47, all right? Ezekiel 47, here I want to talk to you about the water flowing from the temple, how it points to the second coming of Christ. So as you turn to Ezekiel chapter 47, let me give you a little bit of information, all right? We know that after the resurrection, Jesus ascended to heaven, Acts 1.11 says, from the mountain, and as he's going up, you remember how the angel said, men of Galilee, why are you standing here looking into heaven? Jesus, who was taken from you, will come in the same way as you saw him go to heaven. Remember that on the ascension? Well, Acts chapter 1 verse 12 says he was standing on the Mount of Olives, standing on the Mount of Olives. Now let me tell you a little bit about Zechariah, and then we'll get to Ezekiel. In Zechariah chapter 14 verse 4, we are told that on that day, that's the second coming of Christ, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. So when Christ comes back, he'll come back the same way he left, down to the Mount of Olives, Zechariah 14.4, his feet will stand on that Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the, on the Mount of Olives it shall be split in two from east to west with a very wide valley so that one half of the mountain shall move northward and the other half will move southward. You say, so what? Well, let me give you one more reference here. Zechariah 14.8 says, same chapter of Zechariah, on that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. So what are we reading? The Mount of Olives is split in two, separated north to south, water flows east and west, half of them to the eastern sea, that's a reference to the Dead Sea, half of them to the western sea, that's a reference to the Mediterranean Sea, and what kind of water is it? It's living water. Now, hopefully you found Ezekiel 47. Keep in mind that chapters 40 through 48 of Ezekiel describe what happens after the second coming as Christ reigns from the temple in Jerusalem for a thousand years. And in chapter 47, verse 1, we read this, then he brought me back to the door of the temple. So there's an angel given some revelation. It could have even been the son of man. He's given Ezekiel, this prophet. He's writing this stuff down. He's seeing this stuff. He said, he brought me back to the door of the temple and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. When he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east, and behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. All right, it's about to get good. You ready? Here we go. Verse 3, going on eastward with the measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits and then led me through the water and it was ankle deep. So a thousand cubits is about the length of your elbow to the end of your hand, 18 inches. So it's about 1,500 feet, so we think, all right? So it's a thousand cubits, and he's measuring from the temple out in this water that's trickling out, and it's flowing east and west. And at a thousand cubits, it was how deep? It was an ankle deep. So he does a second measurement, verse 4. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was knee deep. So he goes another thousand cubits, and it goes from ankle deep to knee deep. 
Okay? Then he measured a thousand. This is the third time in the middle of verse four. He measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was waist deep. And then again he measured a thousand, and it was the river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in a river that could not be passed through. So by the time he gets to the fourth measurement of a thousand cubits, now the river went from ankle deep, knee deep, waist deep. It's so deep you're going to swim in it. All right? Now check this out. It's that deep where you're swimming in it. And then he says this, verse 6, he said to me, son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on one side and on the other. He said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. I think he's talking about this water is going to run eastward into the Dead Sea. Do you know why they call it the Dead Sea? Because it's dead. There's nothing living there. It's the highest concentration of salt in the, on the earth. You can float in it. You can read a newspaper in it. I've seen pictures of where you can drive a car into it, and it'll just sit there. We tried to get our tour guide to take the bus down into it, but he wouldn't do it. So you could just sit there. And, and read the paper because it's so dense and it's dead because there's nothing there. I mean, it's good for your skin and all that, ladies. You love it for that reason. But there's nothing swimming around in there. Okay, you don't have to worry about any sharks or any kind of critters down in there because it's dead. But not during the millennium. During the millennium, when Christ comes back and his feet touch down on the Mount of Olives and it's split in two and these rivers start to flow east and west and this river of life starts to come down into the Dead Sea, verse 9, Ezekiel 47, 9, and wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be very many fish. For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh, so everything will live where the river goes. Now again, what are we talking about? This is, this is a picture Yes, I believe it happens in reality in the future, but I also think this is a picture of this flowing water out of the temple of the river of life. Everywhere the river goes, every creature will live. The Dead Sea, which is filled with the, that concentration of salt water, will be made fresh water, and it will all of a sudden contain every living creature that swarms or lives in the water will be in this fresh water because this river of life causes all salt water to be fresh. This is a picture of salvation. This is a picture of water coming from Christ into your dead heart. This is a picture of water that flows into you and everything this river of life touches will be made alive. Again, Jesus says, remember, verse 38, whoever believes in me out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The temple is a picture of your soul. Just as there will be a real temple in the millennium that has water flowing out of it, he's saying in the here and now, you're the temple of the living God. You have Christ living in you. Out of you, when you're born again and filled with the Holy Spirit, He begins to flow out of you with living water. He changes you first because you got to drink because you're thirsty, but then you start to become a channel. You start to become a flow. You become a river. And so whatever you're doing, wherever you are, we understand, and we'll get into this next week, that now the Spirit of 
God in the, in the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is part of what's happening here. This is the Holy Spirit filling you with power to overcome sin. The Holy Spirit filling you with boldness to proclaim the gospel. The Holy Spirit that makes you bold as a lion, helps you serve the Lord in a way that's radical, in a way that's, that's redemptive, in a way that's rejoicing. And so I don't know what river you're in this morning, but you need to get in this river. Right? This is the river for you. This is the river of life. And this river is coming for real in the millennium, but it's here now in the sense of a spiritual river of life out of our Lord Jesus Christ into the heart of every believer who drinks and partakes of the glories of Christ. I think Jesus had this in mind. He may have had other passages in mind, but I think there's a good, a good reason about all the water connection that this is part of what Jesus is thinking about as he begins to teach here at the Feast of Booths. One more passage that I think that could be considered here would be uh, C in your outline. The glory of the temple will be greater during the millennium, during the millennial reign of Christ. Okay, I'll try to get through this one a little bit quicker, but Haggai is a post-exilic prophet, meaning after the 70 years of exile in Babylon, Israel returns back to Jerusalem and we have Nehemiah who was rebuilding the wall and then a man named Zerubbabel who was rebuilding the temple. And it was at that point that we hear this prophecy of Haggai chapter 2. So go to the end of the Old Testament and come back just a couple and you'll be right there at Haggai. And here's what we read in chapter 2 verse 1. In the seventh month of the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. I'll stop right there. Let me just remind you that it was the seventh month on the 21st day of the Feast of Booths when Jesus got up and spoke. So this, this prophecy of what he's saying of the seventh month on the 21st day, same day, the same day of the same feast of the seventh month of the 21st day, the great day when the Lord Jesus stood up and he spoke this would have been part of what Haggai could have been talking about. It's the same day. Okay? This is what he says, verse 2, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? So, pause. What he's saying is this. They began to rebuild the temple. It wasn't as glorious as Solomon's temple. I'm sorry, they've been gone for 70 years. They come back as a, a bunch of prisoners that have been beat up. They're trying to rebuild this temple, and it's special, but it's not the same as 1 Kings chapter 8 when the Shekinah glory filled the temple. It's not the same as when King Solomon built the temple in all of its splendor, and he sacrificed a thousand bulls. So what he's saying is some of these people who are now 70 remember maybe Solomon's temple, and they're a little bit sad. They're like, oh, man. We rebuilt the temple, but man, it's like just a shadow of what used to be here. It used to be so much bigger and so much better, so Haggai wants to encourage them. He's encouraging the people. He's acknowledging, yeah, it's not as good, but, verse 4, yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. In other words, he's saying, hey, be strong, don't be discouraged, keep working, keep doing what you're doing. I'm God, verse 5, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst, fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet 
once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. You know what he's saying? It's going to be better in the future than it is now. The latter glory of this house will be better than the former glory of this house because there's coming a day when Christ is coming. There's coming a day when he will come. He will dwell in this house. It will be far more glorious than Solomon's temple. I'm talking about the millennium. I'm talking about the age when the Lord will shake up all the nations. And so while this passage here is still not come true just yet, I believe when Jesus is speaking, he's thinking about various Old Testament connections from even Haggai's time, because we read about this also, this same prophecy of Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 through 7, is quoted in the New Testament in Hebrews 12, verses 26 through 29. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now as he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that things that cannot be shaken may remain. So in other words, he's quoting Haggai 2 in Hebrews chapter 12. You see the reference there, and he said, this is going to happen. It's going to happen when Christ comes. He's going to build something that, that's not made by human hands. He's, he's doing a special work. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So this is what we're learning. All that to say that from Exodus to Ezekiel to Haggai, we see these amazing prophecies that are fulfilled in the person of Christ, partially at His first coming, fully, at his second coming when he sets up his millennial kingdom. These prophecies will be filled fully and Christ is claiming and stating that in you is living water flowing from you. I, I think that we should say about this, isn't God's word awesome? Isn't it good to do Bible study on the word of God? Quit saying the Bible's boring. I already know all that already. Look, you didn't know Jack before you came in here about all this, all right? Because God's Word is alive and active, and we need to be studying it and be filled with it and get into this river of God's revelation and His Word about how awesome He is. So if you're parched this morning, if you're dry this morning, if you're sad this morning, if you're out of sorts this morning, let me invite you to come. Come this morning and drink from this water Do you believe? Are you being transformed? Are your affections stirred? Are your emotions enlightened? Are you experiencing the flow of living water out of your heart? If not, why not? You're here this morning, you're like, I don't feel like I got a river flowing through me. Well, come. Is it spiritual dehydration? Have you built a dam of legalism? Are you allowing the broken cisterns of this world to drain the river dry? Are you trying to get through the wilderness on your own strength? Are you thirsty this morning? Come to Christ and drink. There is enough water here for you. There is overflowing water. Remember, it's deep enough to swim in. 
We're not inviting you to some ankle-deep Jesus, knee-deep Jesus, waist-foot-deep Jesus. You can swim in this river for a lifetime and for an eternity, and everything this river touches turns to life. What an amazing picture that we see here as we finalize the sermon. Just look at those take-home questions that would challenge you, encourage you a little more. That first take-home question is this, what is keeping you from being thirsty? What is it this morning that, that you say, well, I, I almost didn't even come this morning. I, I didn't think about coming to church. Why aren't you thirsty? What is it that, that you're drinking on? Are you drinking something like salt that's, that's, that's either that's just kind of filling you and blocking you from uh, uh, you know, having this kind of thirst for God? What is it that's keeping you from being thirsty? Number two, have you truly drunk from the living water? Maybe you've been in church. Maybe you play church. Maybe you like things about church, but you've never drank. You've come, you're thirsty, but you've never really stuck your head into this river to drink of Christ. Number three, where is your river flowing? You know what I'd like to see? I'd like to see a whole bunch of Placerita Christians who are in this river and that out of your heart is flowing this river of life in your neighborhood, at your school, at your place of work. When people see you, they see an artesian well that's just exploding water. That people see you, they see the love of Christ on your face. They see that you're not tied down to the things of this world. Is the river flowing in you? Well, maybe this morning you need to come and drink. I invite you. Are you thirsty this morning? Come to Christ and drink this water. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that today you would help us to just see all that we've kind of looked at this morning. And we know, Lord, that your word is deep and your word goes long and we can't always just get it all together. And yet we see some things this morning that stretch us and open our eyes as we consider how Hebrew culture points to Christ, how Old Testament scriptures point to Christ, how the Holy Spirit gives testimony and points to Christ. And I pray, Lord, as we think about this passage this morning, and as we just examine our lives this morning, that you would help us to get out of the desert and to get off of the, the salty plains of the Dead Sea. And Lord, we want to be touched by this river of life that causes all things to live. And so God, I pray for the hurting soul, the thirsty soul. I pray for the person who is drinking. Help us drink more and more deeply of the things of God. Help us as a church to be able to say that out of this church flows living water, that out of our hearts flows living water, that we will be able to water this world with your grace and your mercy and the gospel call. May we be faithful even as Christ was to invite people to come to the Savior and to be satisfied in him and in him alone. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.